morning. Hope you guys all had a, a great Thanksgiving. I see lots of what are obviously family in the house, so welcome. Uh, glad you guys are here. Uh, if you have a Bible, you can open up to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, but it'll also be on the screen behind me. <clears throat> We're going to start in verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That's our word for today. God, it is such an, uh, such an honor to even have heard this uh, word of good news, Lord. Um, but I'm just so humbled to be able to uh, try to be a vessel of that good news today. So would you use uh, me? Would you use my quirkiness? Would you use my, uh, my words, Lord, uh, to help us understand the good news of your advent into history? God, we open our hearts, we open our minds, and we, uh, we wait upon you, we're expectant, and we ask you to do something sweet with us today. In the name of King Jesus, amen. Okay, so this is the first week in an Advent series. Uh, we'll be doing, kind of with the rest of the church around the world, uh, for the next several weeks leading up to Christmas, uh, a series uh, called Advent, which is basically a waiting. Advent comes from the Latin word adventus, which means coming uh, or arrival. And so essentially what Christmas is, is the, uh, a celebration of the arrival or the birth of Jesus. And what Advent has been for, for generations is uh, the four weeks leading up to Christmas, we basically practice waiting for the coming of Jesus. But it's sort of a double waiting thing because we know that what we believe is that Jesus came and, uh, and inaugurated his kingdom 2,000 years ago. So part of Advent is waiting essentially for something that already happened, which means what we do is we sort of take on the posture of Israel, the Jews, God's chosen people, who Jesus broke into, and we sit as they were sitting and try to wait as they were waiting to understand what it meant for Jesus to show up 2,000 years ago. And then what that does is it actually helps form us, train us, it's really a spiritual discipline, to wait for what we believe will be a second coming, a second advent of Christ into some future time in history. An advent that we ourselves need that's a part of our story that we are desperately, desperately hoping for. But the way Advent works is how we learn to wait for the first Christmas shapes how we end up waiting in real life, in our lives, how we end up living in accordance with what it is we believe we're waiting for. <clears throat> so 
Back to this passage from Luke. Uh, Essentially, I would say that this is, according to Luke, what Advent meant for Jesus in his own words. Uh, But interestingly, he didn't even use his own words. He actually quoted from very familiar Jewish scriptures, what we uh, know as the 61st chapter of the book of Isaiah. It's the same text or a portion of the same text that David and Elisa were reading for us today. Jesus reads these words. Basically, we didn't have a a Bible in Jesus' time. You have this scroll, this thing that unrolls. So he is handed this scroll. It's his turn to teach, and he unrolls it. He gets to pick this little section that he's going to teach from, and he reads it. And then in this epic drop-the-mic dramatic teaching moment, sets it down and says, this has been fulfilled in you hearing this, just in me reading this. But what exactly was being fulfilled? What is this good news? Put it back on the screen. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind and to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In a nutshell, good things happening to suffering people. The poor receive good news. Prisoners or captives in some other translations will be set free. Blind are enabled to see. And the oppressed are liberated from their oppressors and from oppression. And that is such good news that it's dubbed this year of the Lord's favor. This special moment in in history, this climax moment where the, the sort of dark clouds part and the sun shines through and things are made right. This constitutes a climax, but there's one very important piece of information that would have been completely obvious to everyone that Jesus was talking to, and some of us might not know, which is very important for us as we enter into Advent, and that is this wasn't just a random list of good things going to happen to a random collection of unfortunate people. It wasn't that at all. These people, the poor the imprisoned, the blind, the oppressed, these people were Israel. These people were the people sitting in the room that Jesus was talking to. This wasn't a sermon about some far off thing. Jesus was talking to the room, to his audience, to his own people, the Jews, about good news for them. Which means what? Two things. Jesus' arrival was good news specifically for Israel who was apparently going through some very tough times. And two, specifically because of these tough times, it meant something very significant and particular for those he was addressing before it ever gets to us 2,000 years later. So part of what Jesus, and I would argue part of what Luke in his, uh, his writing of this gospel are trying to make clear to us is that the meaning of Christ's arrival is based entirely upon Israel's story their true story, their real life story, the people that were living, the people that had been living for over 2,000 years up to that point when Jesus stepped in. And in particular, their suffering. And in particular, their hope in the midst of that suffering of what it is they were hoping for. Very particular hopes, particular promises that they were hoping would be fulfilled, hoping for a very long time to be fulfilled. Jesus' announcement was great news and made very clear sense to his Jewish audience 
because it was based on their context. So here's where I'm going to share a little story that uh, I didn't tell my wife I was going to share. <laughs> but Dave Loma said if I didn't share it, he was going to share it soon. So it's my story. I'm sharing it. Uh, so this last summer, my wife and I are about to have our first baby in, uh, in four weeks. And yeah, amen. And uh, this summer, we were really, really blessed to take uh, a really sweet sabbatical baby moon, who knows what to call it, awesome trip. And we flew over to Europe, and we, uh, we biked. During my wife's second trimester, she biked from uh, Italy, across France, and across Spain in three months. Yes. Monique is one of the strongest people you'll ever meet. So, biking for three months across Europe, you have a lot of time outside in the quiet to think about stuff. Most of the time we're just riding single file, which means we're not even next to each other. And most of the time it's just nothing. So four, five, six hours on the bike every day, and we're riding through southern France in the forest, and there's lavender, and you're just kind of pondering life, pondering God, pondering the things of this world. And just like, it was just a sweet season for us thinking about parenting and, and where God's taken us in, in our journey so far. And then one day, we're in France, and we're riding through this beautiful forest, and I'm just like in this space, like, you know, just reflecting on all sorts of stuff that you don't get time to reflect on in normal life. And then little Monique pulls up next to me. She can just zoom up right next to me. And she goes, hey, like what? Who killed Biggie Smalls? <laughs> I literally almost rode my bike into a tree. <laughs> and I still haven't answered her question. I don't, I don't know. Uh, and this is a hilarious story about my wife, first and foremost, uh, who you guys should all get to know. But Secondly, it's, it's a funny, comical example of, uh, of the importance of context. <laughs> the story that I had been living in for the four hours leading up to that moment was not the same story that my wife was living in. <laughs> and I had zero context for that question, for that anything, and was so taken off guard, I almost crashed my bike. So... Here's why I bring that in, other than to laugh at my wife. Advent occurred within the very specific context of Israel's history. And if we don't understand that context, or we detach Christmas from that context, it can be confusing, it can be awkward, we don't have a, a, a paradigm to catch it. It can be just sort of this abrupt thing that enters into our world and we don't know what to do with it. But also, I think as we enter into Advent, there uh, is a warning and there's an invitation to us. And I'll start with a warning, bad news first. I actually think that if we detach Christmas from the genuine real life story of Israel, that not only can it be awkward and confusing, that if we detach it, it can, we can actually end up celebrating a caricature Christmas. Which means we won't just be confused by it, we'll actually corrupt distort, turn Christmas into something it's not. It will become a caricature of itself. And that may or may not resonate with some of you in here, but it has for me in my life. But remember what I said about Advent. It's this double waiting. 
So we are practicing waiting for something that's already happened so that it will train us to live lives that are waiting well for what we are hoping to happen in the future. So if what we are doing in Advent is celebrating a caricature Christmas, a false conception of what Jesus' arrival into history actually was, it can actually be training us to be living lives that are waiting for the wrong thing. It can actually be forming us to live poorly because we're being trained to live according to some false expectation, some false sense of fulfillment, some false hope. So it's more important than just getting Christmas right. This is actually a whole life experience. So we're going to spend some time today trying to enter into Israel's story. But there's a, uh, another warning Jesus gives later on in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, there's this rich man and Lazarus. And uh, they're both Jewish. Rich man has this big house and nice clothes. And there's this poor guy, Lazarus, with boils and he's sick and he's a beggar and he's outside in the street. And, and you can pull a lot of stuff from this, uh, this story that Jesus tells. But essentially they die in this parable kind of comes together with uh, the hopes and expectations of these, these two people. And essentially what you see is, is the story of this rich man who is waiting for something entirely false. And he's incredibly disappointed with what's happened. The good news actually is that this beggar in the, uh, the wording of the story is kind of brought into like peace and wholeness and relationship and healing. And he's actually made well and he's no longer a beggar just at some guy's doorstep. But what the rich guy was waiting for wasn't that. The rich, rich guy actually still wanted the beggar to be able to come bring him water whenever he wanted. So the story is actually gospel. It's great news. But for the guy who is waiting for the wrong thing, it's not good news. He's actually really disappointed. So there's a sense that we could actually be waiting for the true good news of, of Christmas and be disappointed when it gets here if we're waiting for the wrong thing. But there's a great opportunity, I think, that we have with Advent as well. And that is, the good news of Jesus' arrival is better than the caricature. It's better than any caricature we make it. The real story is actually the best story. We don't have to improve it. We can't improve it. What's really happened in history and what we're really waiting for is the best story the world has ever heard. So the more that we can actually enter into Israel's story, the story of the Jewish people, their felt experience, what they were waiting for and hoping for, the better Christmas becomes for us, the better our gospel, the, the better news it is for us. But also, remember, this is a training thing. We're actually entering into the season to form ourselves to live a certain kind of life. So the, the more we enter into Israel's story, the better able we are, the better prepared we are to live beautiful, good, loving lives, waiting for our own advent, waiting for Christ to come into our history, for Christ to arrive in our world. So what do I mean? Kind of an example of sort of the real versus the caricature. Uh, one of our favorite uh, Christmas songs, we're going to sing it today even, is Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Uh, it's been a hymn in the church for a long time, and it is an incredibly beautiful, powerful song. I'll read a few lyrics. Come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to thee, O Israel. 
if we know the story, if we know what these words are referring to, we realize we're, we're kind of singing Israel's song. We're entering into their story, feeling their feelings, and we're, we're singing this beautiful hymn. But if we don't understand the story, we don't know what these words mean, some of us are probably sitting here saying, ransom captive Israel. What does that mean? And probably, if you're anything like me, you just fake it till you make it, and you kind of sing along, and there's like some other line coming up, and I'll know what that one means, like we'll sing that one. So the, the point isn't to bash the song. The song is, is one of the, the greatest assets we have. The idea is that if we, if we don't understand the story that we are kind of uh, participating in, uh, then we can sing the song and it won't mean much. Uh, we can sing the song and it actually means something f- to us that isn't what, what it actually means. But in a little while, we'll have an opportunity to sing this song together. And if we enter into Israel's story, which we'll see is one of exile, one of suffering, just us sitting in this room singing this song can be one of the best possible practical ways for us to wait for Jesus to come back for this world. We can actually sing in a way that's forming us, that we're entering into this like world force that's crying out for King Jesus to return. Just singing it is a beautiful, profound, life-changing thing. We just need to know the context. So, Advent is an opportunity. So, what exactly uh, is this story I keep talking about? What is Israel's story? Uh, What were they waiting for? What does it mean that they were captives in exile? What did Advent mean to Israel, to those people in the synagogue that day with Jesus? What was going on that would have made Jesus' quote of Isaiah his choice for his inaugural address? So, uh, today we're going to do something a little bit different. Something that the pastors have laughed at me for the last two weeks. uh, Because they figured I would do something like this. Which is we're going to go over the entire history of the Jewish people. In, a, in about 10 minutes. So, uh, know a few things. Obviously, it's going to be a very reduced, oversimplified, uh, reductionist story. Um, but we built some, basically, timelines that we want to go over with you guys. Uh, just to give us a sense of what is this moment, what is this climax, what is this uh, narrative uh, that we're stepping into. And for those of you that will immediately have flashbacks and trauma from high school history classes, uh, please know the point of this is not to get names and dates and all that. Uh, We're going to spend the whole year next year studying in depth the entire uh, Bible and trying to understand these themes and the story and all that. Uh, Picture it, if you guys have been to Disneyland, uh, there's that soaring over California uh, ride where you like get strapped in and there's like a screen with all the different shots of California and like orange mist like spraying in your face to make it feel like you're in the orange groves. Uh, the point is to help you feel California, right? Not to just like learn uh, fun facts about California. So that's what we're going to try to do today. We're going to try to enter into Israel's story and feel it, feel the drama, feel the ebbs and flows, feel the narrative, feel the suspense building, uh, feel the uh, down point that's going to lead potentially to some climax. Uh, Worry about names, dates, and all that stuff later. And these timelines will be up on our website if you guys want to use them for for further study. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to start at the beginning. Genesis, which literally means the beginning. Got the timeline? Oh, yeah, there it is. Okay, again, if that helps you to look at that, 
look at it. If it doesn't help you, right here. Look at me. Okay. Genesis. The first uh, 11 chapters of Genesis basically open up creation. God created a world that's good. There's this fall. If you guys have been in the church, it's a pretty familiar concept. Uh, mankind has rebelled. The world has fallen apart. And it basically leads up to this question, begging the question, what is going to happen with the world? Will anyone set the world right? What is God or anybody going to do? And then the next chapter, all of a sudden, you introduced to this guy named Abram, this sort of traveling nomadic uh, farmer with his wife. And essentially, God says in, through the text in Genesis, I'm going to take this man, I'm going to make a covenant with him, he's going to have a family, I'm going to give him an entire uh, land, this place where he can have a, a country of his own, a homeland, and he's going to have this great family that will become a nation, and this family will actually be the way that the world is set right, this nation. So Abram, they go through this season, their, their names get changed, they, they migrate, uh, and they basically move to the land, and there are a couple generations uh, with Isaac, his kid, and then Jacob, his grandkid, and they're basically in this land, but the land that God's giving them is already settled. It's already occupied, and there's no free sanctuary for migrants. They don't just get to knock, out, knock on the door and apply for a visa. So they are homeless, wandering, waiting somehow for God to make a way into this country. And then, literally, the, the generation of grandkid, Jacob, uh, his name gets changed to Israel, which... Uh, can mean wrestling with God, and there's a story you guys may remember where there's this wrestle, but it can also mean Israel means he who prevails with God. As in the question is, how's the world going to be set right? And the answer is, Israel will prevail with God. That's the point. This is the people. This is their identity. It's, it's creating, God is creating this story, this history of a people that will somehow redeem the whole world. But this people is homeless for 200 years. They don't have anywhere to go. They're, they're barely able to survive. And from the get-go, God tells Abraham, hey, this is going to be really hard. You guys are going to be in slavery for a long time. So after wandering, uh, this beginning section you see up there for about 250 years, wandering homeless, left whatever home they had. There's a famine. They have no way to take care of themselves. They end up, uh, there's all this issue with Joseph, and he gets sent into Egypt. His brothers betray him. And then Joseph gets to bring the family back to fertile Egypt where they actually have uh, crops that are growing during the middle of the famine. And sure enough, they get into Egypt and they have sort of a safe sanctuary for maybe a generation, two generations. And then Pharaoh and the locals decide uh, these Hebrew people are too much for us. They're a threat. Uh, we don't like them on our ground. They could take over. They could ruin our culture. They could destroy what we have. So they make them slaves. So for 400 years, <laughs> this great, hopeful, changing the world people is slaves in Egypt. And then a lot of you guys know the story. Uh, there's the great exodus. God does this wonderful work with Moses and the Pharaoh and these people go out through the Red Sea and they're free, freedom at last. After essentially 650 years, 700 years, God's people are liberated but they're liberated to a desert wilderness where they're homeless, living out of tents, literally surviving on basically what is God's emergency welfare program of manna falling from the sky every day. It's not exactly the glory years, right? And then you have this project, God has this project of actually taking a group of enslaved people, enslaved for 400 years, two and a half times as long as our nation's been in existence, 
in making them the world's leading society, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation that the rest of the world will come to them and say, how could you guys live in such a beautiful way? To which they'll answer, oh, with Yahweh as our God and our king. That's the plan, right? Okay, so for 40 years, they're living in the wilderness. And Moses gives them the law. It's this really beautiful, uh, basically, time where God is teaching. He's training this group of freed slaves to become this beautiful society. So he gives them guidance, the Torah, which, which means guidance or instructions for how to do it. And there's this big climactic moment. Deuteronomy, if you guys have, have never read it, if you're going to read anything next year, read Deuteronomy. It's basically, you guys remember the speech from Independence Day? It's like the best speech in film history. Like, we will not go silently into the night. Okay. Deuteronomy is basically Moses giving a bunch of those speeches. Like, you can do it. You can go in the promised land. You can be this kind of people. Like, and it's not just about saving the world from aliens. It's actually, like, applies to our life. It's the best, best thing you could read. So there's this moment. It's kind of like the, the pinnacle. Everything's focusing on this. They're, they're actually going to enter into this land, which is a place where they can actually become a people, a nation, uh, have a home. But again, it's been occupied. So the first 30 years, this group of freed slaves, which the first generation has died, and now it's just the kids, and they've been living in the wilderness, they now have to go to war for 30 years, basically to fight for a place to live. So they war, God helps them. After about 30 years, this, uh, this time of the judges begins, which is basically a few hundred years of Israel actually as a nation, they're there, they made it, they're governing themselves. They're trying to do what God told them to do. This is the, the fulfillment. This is the best thing they've ever had. But their borders aren't secure, and they're attacked on an almost regular basis. And then division breaks out within them. And so there's this sort of discontent that leads the people to say, we actually need a king, we need to convert to a monarchy. We need more power, we need to be able to protect ourselves, we're vulnerable here. And so Saul becomes Israel's first king, which seems like this great, woohoo, we got a king moment. And there's this really sad moment that says, God says to one of their prophets, tell these people what this king's going to do to you. He's going to make you slaves just like Pharaoh did to you in Egypt. Because that's what evil does. So their first king starts well and then turns into a quick debacle. So God is, is gracious and God is patient and God is faithful. So he raises up a new king. David, and finally, under David, there's, there's one solid, unified nation. There's peace in the land. Prosperity begins. This is like the glorious arrival of hopes, of Israel's hopes. And then after David, after this, this great 40-year reign, then comes David's son Solomon. And then with Solomon, they're building things. There's a palace and a temple, and there's prosperity, and the whole world is coming around to trade with Israel. This is like progress. This is happening, this thing we've all been waiting for. Two kings, two generations. And by the end of Solomon's reign, it all starts to fall apart. Basically, the kingdom divides in two. Literally, the nation splits in half. There's a civil war, and then there's separate kings leading in the northern part in, in Israel and the southern land in Judah. And so the family is now not even one united family. And then the, both nations basically begin this steady decline, and their kings are getting worse and enslaving them and being more and more corrupt. And their own people, their own people, not just the Pharaoh in Egypt, but 
Jews themselves are becoming their kings and oppressing them and stealing their land and, and taking uh, their property and putting them into poverty. And they're crying out. And eventually, the whole thing, the bottom falls out. 722, uh, there's been this great world empire similar to the Egyptian empire and Assyria has been building and building power. And in 722, they basically demolish the northern kingdom of Israel and take off the people into exile. And here's where I want to say something about exile, because if you guys have been in kind of like church theology world uh, for a while, you've probably heard the word exile. But if you're anything like me, that word doesn't hurt enough. Uh, exile feels really like neat and nice and, uh, and theology-y. Uh, but what exile is meant that most of the people were murdered. Uh, those that weren't murdered were mostly t- deported, taken off as slaves, taken from their land. And those that stayed uh, had some foreign king rule them, oppress them, take their wives, take their children. That was exile, all to God's chosen people. So for a season, half the kingdom's gone. And the other half is saying, how could this have possibly happened to us? How could this have happened to Israel, God's nation? And there are these warnings that it can happen to Judah too, and the nation doesn't take it too seriously. So if that weren't bad enough, eh, later in f- five something, 586, uh, Babylon takes over Assyria, grows even more, and takes over Judah, and now even Jerusalem sacked, and literally the entire nation is taken into exile. Exile, once again, meaning murder, deportation. We're all refugees, homeless. So eventually, this low point starts to maybe trickle a little bit of hope. The empire gets taken over. There's sort of this short reign where uh, the Persian Empire dominates Babylon. And the Persian Empire is is not as... uh, against the Jews as some of the others. So he actually let some of them start coming back to their homeland. So for about 100 years, these small kind of waves of of people are making their way back to the land, trying to restart this whole project, restart this country, rebuild from the ashes. And for a while, it looks like, okay, bad time. We got through it. There's a remnant. We survived. Let's redo this thing. And it barely lasts a few generations before Alexander the Great and the Greek Empire comes in and does it all over again. More more homelessness, more murder, getting kicked out of your own land. Then, to finish out this story, if you guys know, the Old Testament doesn't cover this. Basically, it's kind of a dark period in the Old Testament. and, And I know I grew up thinking this was just kind of a nice, peaceful time where Israel was just sort of waiting, wondering what a Messiah would be, but it wasn't it at all. It was just getting darker and darker. So once uh, the Greek empire starts to collapse from within, there's this small period of freedom where Israel regains its autonomy once again for about two generations, maybe three. They start rebuilding, start making plans to rebuild the temple, all the important things. And then the great Roman empire, in effort to literally conquer the entire known world, to make every person in the world bow a knee to Caesar squashes Israel. And once again, exile, meaning many deported, many taken off, and those that are left 
are under Roman rule, cruel, brutal Roman rule. You guys remember uh, Herod, who is the king over Israel appointed by Rome, had their number one prophet up until the time of Jesus, John the Baptist, murdered for saying something to him that he didn't like to hear. So the experience, when Jesus shows up, the experience, the, the story of, of the Jewish people, the story of Israel, in the advent of Jesus, was one not only of horrible, miserable suffering, but one of, at a, 20, a point of 2,100-year history, built on hope, the hope that God would not only make them a beautiful people, but would save the whole world. 2,100 years, and they're in exile. They're literally exiled from their hope, from these promises. And the felt experience would have been, though there were good seasons, though there were some breaks, though there was some freedom, for most of the last 750 years, America's 240 years old, for most of the last 750 years, these were an enslaved people in exile. Some, one of the world's great empires dominating them time and time and time again. And that is the story that Jesus steps into. So look at uh, what we did. Take the, take the information away for a little bit. Forget about the events, forget about the dates. This is a history. And then let's just look at the math. So in their existence as a people, from the time that God spoke to Abraham, more than half of their existence has been one of exile. And for their most recent history, for all of those that who are alive that Jesus was talking to, that was all they knew. That was all they knew. That was all their parents knew. That was all their grandparents knew. They weren't looking for just some, you know, special guy to come around and make things a little better. Their world was one of the darkest moments in the history of humanity. Imagine the worst political situation you know of now. It was that bad, if not worse. Imagine North Korea, Syria. And that is what Jesus stepped into. That is Israel's story. The context of Christmas is exile. The context of Christmas is being refugees in your own home. It's being trapped as slaves and prisoners to cruel foreign kings. It's suffering constant violence and oppression. The context of Christmas is a life banished to poverty. It's having no escape, no sanctuary to flee to. It's literal captivity, being in a cage. It's not being able to see any way out. And it's into this world, this context, this story, in this horribly low point in this story, that Jesus steps in and quotes Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Think about how the people in that room might have heard Jesus quoting that and saying, this is being fulfilled. 
the way Matthew and Mark put it in Matthew 4. So as Jesus began to preach, this is the same time. It's the beginning of his uh, adult vocational life. Baptism, goes out into the wilderness, and then he comes back and it's, it's go time. It's launch time. According to Matthew, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near, or the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in Mark, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Fulfillment, climax, really, really good news in the context of the worst suffering you can possibly imagine. That was Christmas. And that was Jesus' gospel. So if you, if you put yourself in their shoes, what you kind of realize is it's the second exodus. It isn't just a, a new person to add on to Israel's story. They were looking for a new, maybe even greater Moses that was going to lead them out of slavery and into all of the good promises that God had for the people. And that's what Jesus' advent meant. But circling back to where we started, there's this double waiting in Advent that we go back and we try to understand Christmas 2,000 years ago so that we can sit in it and we can feel it and we can wait and pray and long for the return of Jesus and that it would shape us so that we actually live in our lives, in our time here, in our own stories, in our own history in ways that are beautifully embodying that waiting that are even bringing little bits, little pieces of that kingdom here. But we said that it's possible if we get the story wrong, if we detach it from its story, we can believe in a caricature Christmas. And I would say if we miss this context, the soil of pain and suffering, political pain, national pain, disappointment, long, long, long disappointment, 2,000 years of disappointment, that the kind of Christmas that we can end up celebrating is such a caricature that we can end up fighting about Starbucks cups online <laughs> instead of actually trying to be the kind of people that are setting the world to rights. And we can actually be so confused that we think the Christian thing to do is to protect ourselves from immigrants and refugees forgetting that actually what Christmas is, is a rescue of immigrants and refugees. And a call for us to live Christmas lives that actually help set the world free from oppression. So, here's what we're gonna do. It's not enough just to know the story. It's not enough just to have an intellectual database of the story. These aren't data points. These were real lives. And they're real lives that actually similar, are very similar, shockingly close to what a good chunk of today's world is living in right now. And so what we're going to do is actually practice feeling this story. We're going to enter into it. We're going to try to inhabit it. And the invitation for the rest of Advent and really for the rest of our lives, especially as we try to study the scriptures next year, is to live in this story, to dwell in it. So we're going to try to do